0: Krista was being shipped out for her own good. Her wider family members had decided that she was becoming a touch too independent, if not a little feral, left to her own devices. She was too devoted to a menagerie of pets, and not at all to her education. And her aunts and uncles felt that her somewhat detached father was in no position to know what was best for her, let alone organise her schooling. What she needed was a little stiffening up, a dose of discipline, a reminder who she was and where she'd come from. How lucky, when her father had been pensioned off and money was so tight that there was just such an establishment willing to take her on. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece, and this is episode three, Mothers of Soldiers. men's the Empress Augusta School and Orphanage. It was founded by Germany's last Empress and Queen of Prussia and began life. In the Charlottenburg district of Berlin. But then in 1902 it was moved to a new site, an imposing Romanesque castle in the new garden quarter of Potsdam. This was a truly prestigious setting for a school. Here it was among grandeur and elegance, Potsdam being bound up in the Prussian love of history and pomp. While the school was set up on philanthropic lines, It was, nevertheless, a place only for the daughters of the ruling and military establishment who had fallen on hard times. It accommodated 88 girls and their teachers and included a gym, library, chapel and a so-called Empress Room dedicated to its founder. It was unquestionably an exclusive place in which to be educated and the teenage Krista Winslow, who travelled with an aunt for hours across the heart of the country to get to Potsdam, was well aware of the privilege of her position. And what an eyeful it was, those statues and pillars, the echoing halls, the grounds, the majesty of Potsdam. What a contrast to the soft and familiar comfort of her home, where in moments of doubt and anxiety she'd been able to run to her mother's wardrobe, gather up her clothes and inhale her fading aroma. There was at least the presence of a loving memory there. Krista was 14 years old when she arrived at the Empress Augusta School in 1903, Her mother had died only three years before, her brother Arthur a while before that. What was left to hold on to? This institute? Was there any chance that she might find a surrogate family here, or some kind of refuge? The Empress Augusta School didn't do family. Or if it did, then it was along military lines. The girls were drilled as much as taught, and deprivation was part of the educational process. The teaching staff were obliged not only to impart some academic acumen in their charges, but to insist on an unquestioning respect for authority. When noble patrons visited the school, the girls greeted them with hushed reverence, heads bowed, deep curtsies. What was being instilled in them was servility. This subservient mentality, or Untertan-mentalität, was later ridiculed by the German author Heinrich Mann, in his novel Man of Straw in 1914. The novel's German name, Der Untertan, translates as the subject, in other words, the inferior of a member of the ruling class. Krista's school was part of a system that still just about governed the world outside, and the children were expected to come out of their school ready to slot right into that subservient role. It was an agony for the free-spirited Krista, beyond repressive. Yes, there were other girls and she made friends, all children like her, torn away from their homes at their most vulnerable, and she enjoyed their company, and there was the usual crushes and emotional intrigues, but she never accepted the school as a home from home. For the rest of her life, the harshness of those years at school, when she was still grieving for her mother and miserably homesick, remained with her and threatened to drag her down into despondency, What she couldn't forgive the system for was its dreariness, its waste of vital youth. In her words, where one day is exactly like another, all days are indistinguishable. Just for a moment, stop and think of a teenage girl, you know. Think of her liveliness, think of the fun, the physicality, the anger, the the childishness, the desire to please, the eagerness to rock the boat, passion, a desire for love and life and recognition. It should never be repressed. Repress it, and there's going to be trouble. There was a story during the rounds when Krista arrived about a girl who'd thrown herself down the stairwell in a grand and final gesture of teenage pain. She'd survived, though her legs were permanently damaged, and her story was passed breathlessly among the girls who came after her. When the tale reached Krista's ears, it found a home in her imagination and, as we now know, made a memorable reappearance years later. What also stayed with Krista were the characters of those in authority. The uncompromising headmistress, her obsequious second-in-command, the embittered staff, and of course, that exceptional teacher, the one that inspired adulation, not just in Christa, but in many of the girls. We know next to nothing about her, other than that she was singularly humane in that heartless regime. Years later, Christa acknowledged that her fictional heroine, Fräulein von Bernburg, was based on, and I quote, the adored teacher who was with us for so short a time and who was possibly forced to leave because of my tragic love for her. For the miserable young girl, desperately adrift without her mother, a warm and loving but authoritarian female figure was just about the only solid thing she could cling to. She needed to talk to someone who was older, who knew about the world, and who she instinctively felt, would understand her sense of otherness. Krista was bursting with emotion, crippled by doubt. The school, she later said, crushed her spirit and made her into what she described as an imbalanced and immature creature in whom fits of intense shyness alternated with periods of unnatural boisterousness. If she was indeed responsible for her teacher's dismissal, then it may have been for no greater crime than simply wishing to talk to her. In Krista's celebrated novel, The Child Manuela, based on those years and featuring this fictionalised mother teacher lover, Fräulein von Bernburg, intimate conversations between teacher and pupil lead to the downfall of both. Krista, here portraying herself as Manuela, can't bear such a formalised monastic existence where even minor infringements are a serious threat to order. In one scene, Manuela finds herself being reproached by von Bernburg for an act of insubordination against the headmistress. The teacher tries to be stern, but merely prompts the girl to come clean about her feelings. And you put your tongue out at her, is that true? No, Fräulein von Bernburg. I only made a face. Why? Because suddenly Manuela's calm deserted her. Because I wanted to be a boy. I hate being a girl. I loathe my hair and my skirt. And at home I always wore shorts when I did gymnastics with my brother and I'd like to wear them all the time. Now she glanced up at Fräulein von Bernburg as if pleading for help. I don't want to be a woman. I want to be a man and to be with you, Fräulein von Bernburg, and that's why she mustn't interfere. Not the head, not her. Manuela, pale and unyielding, Fräulein von Bernburg towered over the agitated child. Words like these must never pass between you and me, do you hear? Now you'll go at once to the headmistress and beg her pardon. Krista's earliest fictional writings, as I've already pointed out, appear to stick pretty solidly to real events in her life. Her mother and brother's deaths, her father's career, the time they spent in Strasbourg, her preschool life, you name it. I feel we can be pretty comfortable with the belief that this exchange probably mirrors something very like it that happened in real life. Maybe passages like these are the closest we'll get to the woman who inspired von Bernborg. If so, we're given a picture of someone torn between benevolence and duty. Much has been made by commentators and critics of this depiction of a girl's passionate attachment to an older woman. Is von Bernborg a substitute mother, supplying the maternal support lacking in the child's life? Is she an object of desire, the catalyst for a girl's sexual awakening? But perhaps all that Krista was really saying, when she wrote this and similar passages, was simply, I don't know. I was just a child. It was all so confusing. Who knows what I felt then? I just needed someone to talk to. The big question, of course, is did pupil and teacher ever kiss? Was the controversial kiss in Mädchen in Uniform based on a real event, or was it wishful thinking? a dream kiss that Krista held close in her imagination for years until it emerged so poignantly in her later work. Adolescence is a time of turmoil in any case. Imagine grieving for your adored mother, being in total confusion about your sexuality, living far from home and family, and then not being allowed to voice any of it. Here is the very root of Krista's lifelong assertion that the school was an abomination. At her most needy and lost, she was denied the compassion and support of a group of adults whose sole task was to turn out hardened future mothers of soldiers. Christa's time at the Empress Augusta School, by her own admission, traumatised her. The experience of it stayed with her, darkly rooted in her psyche, and emerged so vividly in her middle years that she almost made an industry out of it, producing not just a play, but a film script and a novel, each one subtly different in personal emphases, but with exactly the same story, that of the grieving young girl dumped in what was more barracks than school. All three versions of the story start with her as a tearful new arrival, a daughter still deeply lost without her mother. That was the abiding memory of her school experience, that there was no warm or loving substitute to a lost parent, or if there was, its presence was stamped on thoroughly. And without mercy. Krista completed her education at a finishing school in the Swiss city of Lausanne. The civilized experience seemed to have gone a little way in undoing the damage wreaked in Potsdam. The time was coming when she would have to assert herself if she really wanted to break free of her familial constraints. There's a picture of her from this period, sometime in the first decade of the 1900s, and presumably taken at the end of her school career. It's charming. She's sitting in a carved, high-backed wooden chair and she's dressed in full Edwardian finery, her waist accentuated, her dark hair piled artfully around her ears. She's striking and statuesque with an oval face and full cheeks, gentle eyes and a smallish, neat mouth. She is swathed from head to foot in pale-coloured lace, every inch the society lady. But the truth is, This young woman was anything but ready to conform. Back at home, biding her time, there was a brewing desire inside her to create. By now, she had developed a passion for art, specifically sculpture. Her brother Ralph had left for college, and her father was somewhat preoccupied with his new wife, Scottish-born Isabella Capper Horrocks, also known as Olga Olga had been married three times previously, twice to German barons and once to a writer, Samuel Capper. A mother of six titled children, she was in her 60s when she married Arthur Winslow, who was by now retired and kicking his heels in the grand leisure spots of Europe. Krista, at this pivotal moment, did something that instantly set her apart, not just from her class, but also of her sex. She went to art school. Aged 19 in 1909, she entered the School of Applied Arts in Munich to study sculpture. While female students in art weren't totally unheard of, and in fact she befriended some of those who were there at the time, they were extremely rare in the discipline of sculpture. If Krista had any fantasies about being welcomed with open arms and fondness as a precious oddity, then she was very quickly disabused. The start of her student career was rocky and frustrating, and once again, It made such an imprint on her sensitivities that she could draw on it richly for her semi-autobiographical writings years later. I discovered that her much later novel, Life Begins, was hard to get hold of and so I read it in one long session in the British Library. It was written nowhere near the beginning of her life but assessed her youth from a useful distance. Once again we can assume that much of it is autobiographical. In it She recounts the exploits of a young female student of sculpture called Eva, richly humiliated by the professor who occasionally deigns to tutor her, and of her relationship with her puerile male fellow students who fall to pieces at the arrival of an an attractive young woman in their midst. Just a quick aside, it's the obvious biographical detail in both The Child Manuela and Life Begins that, in my opinion, makes them less than successful works of literature, They feel more like random acts of therapy than thought-out narratives. But it's this very personal simplicity that makes them such fascinating documents. You know these are real lives. Anyway, life begins as a story about a sexual awakening as much as an artistic one, but recounts with useful detail the life of a trainee sculptress. Here's how our heroine's regime is described. Day in, day out, the same programme, dressing in the dark of early morning, for by half-past eight Eva was in her place at school, for midday a brief interval for a meal at the boarding house, then back to work at two, a break for coffee before the evening life class from five to seven, then home, exhausted, with achy feet and pallid cheeks. Life classes, of course, were a controversial issue when it came to educating women artists. For a long time, it had been one of the sticking points in accepting women to art school at all. Women had sex with males, gave birth to males, but they certainly couldn't be allowed to view their naked bodies in order to educate themselves. The Royal Academy in London didn't accept its first female student until 1860, and these women artists, who were still in a minority thereafter, weren't allowed to participate in life classes for another 30 years, and even then they were separated from their male colleagues during the process. Christa's commitment to her art tells us so much about her nature, about her strength of character, her spirit and her tenacity. We already know that she was troubled by a sense of differentness. How much more isolated could she be than in an institution that doesn't even want her? Here she was back in a male preserve, just as she'd been in her father's milieu of military ritual and masculine preeminence. For years I've pored over a book called Danger, Women Artists at Work. It's a compilation of glorious and provocative artworks by women painters put together by the art historian Deborah M Mankoff. My daughter's been just as entranced by it as I have. Mankoff's description of the masculine world of art, I think, throws some helpful light on what Krista must have gone through to educate herself. The history of art was a celebration of male talent and accomplishments lording the great men, the old masters, who made the great art that was displayed to a mostly male audience in male-run institutions. Men ran the studios and taught in the schools, and for the most part it was men who organised the exhibitions, wrote the reviews and bought works of art. But women have always had a role in the arts, often working behind the scenes or in opposition to prevailing attitudes and practices. For a woman to seek recognition in this masculine domain took courage. She had to steel herself for confrontation and be ready to defy conventions and expectations. To secure her place in the art world, a woman had to be willing to court danger. And so, although her male fellow students were pretty silly around her at the start, in time things calmed down and they realised that the world wasn't falling apart and that you could make friends with a girl without compromising her or yourself. Krista established for herself a way of life that she maintained for the rest of her days. It was based on camaraderie, immersion in her art and a lot of social gatherings in the company of artists, writers and generally creative types. In other words, the life of the so-called bohemian. It suited her down to the ground. She was home at last. And what a home! Her friends were straight, gay, Jewish, Gentile, upper class, middle class, working class, noble, ignoble. The thrill was the variety and the honesty. For the first time, she was among those who, like her, couldn't live the lie of conventionality, either socially or sexually. For the first time, too, she could take a breather and not feel so abashed about her sexual yearnings though there's no evidence at this point that she was openly gay. Here were thrilling young people who devoted their every energy to creative integrity. Here were bold, experienced women with short hair and in mannish suits with their pretty girlfriends who fascinated her. Here were uninhibited worldly men who pursued her brazenly and lined up to be the first to widen her experiences, as they put it. Of course, even this new world had its frustrations, resentments and troubles, But the point was it was hers, and she was steering the course, not her family and not her class. Munich, at the turn of the century, had more artists living and working in it than Berlin and Vienna put together, and they were a radical lot. The Munich secession was formed by an angry breakaway group of modernist artists in the 1890s, who felt that the city's conservative abeyance to traditional, state-sponsored art stifled their creativity and originality. It was into this world of artistic opportunity that Krista launched her career. She was very rapidly assimilated into their way of life. She relished it all and made friends for life, but above all, poured her energies into her sculpting, agonising, as all artists do, about whether she was any good and how she could make some impact on the world. Munich was absolutely right for her. She'd made it her place, and she couldn't have found a more vigorous and independent artistic hotspot in all of Germany. She got herself a flat and a studio, cut her hair into a bob, swapped her girlish debutante dresses for more practical and stylishly androgynous clothes, and settled into the world of art, specialising in animal figures. She was home at last which makes her next move all the more bizarre. Because in 1913, aged 25, Krista got married, and she married straight back into the aristocracy. Next time on The Kiss, we travel far from Germany and meet a young girl from a very different class and very different way of life, but who is nonetheless just as desperate to break free. The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece. Researched, written and presented by Bibi Berkey. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam-Weber. It was directed by Mark Lingwood and the original music was composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions.